With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. It's always love having new folks to talk to on the show. This is going to be a good one. We're going to talk a little uh, economics, a little regulation. Who knows what else we might even get into because this guy studies Egyptian ancient history. Might have to ask him about that. Mike Viola, great of you to join us. Appreciate your time, sir. Absolutely. Great to be here. I appreciate it. Um, let's start with this. You work for Fee. We've had our friends on there before. Of course, we know our friends Brad and Hannah and others from Fee. They do good work. What got you into wanting to study economics? Before we get into your piece, I always ask people, like, why do you get into your fields of expertise? What is it about economics? Are you just, you know, a data geek for the numbers? Is it the people part of it? Tell me why you like economics so much, because I think people hear economics and then they have this reaction of like, oh, that's a bunch of math or, oh, that's just the unemployment numbers. It's such a broad field. Put a personal face on it on why you get into this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I studied nothing numbers related in college. I studied ancient Egyptian history and hieroglyphs, and I, I double majored in poli sci. So I was coming from a very uh, non-quantitative background. But um, as an undergrad, I went to the University of Chicago, where Milton Friedman um, and a number of other econ economists had sort of built up the Chicago school and left a really lasting legacy there. And I would watch those Milton Friedman videos that yeah, would oftentimes be, be promoted through our economics department. Um, and I was just absolutely floored away, A, by his absolute civility in dealing with hostile questions all the time, but B, the clarity with which he explained why free markets um, create the, the best circumstances for success of everyday people. And so that really moved me towards an economic liberty mindset. And it just became a bit of a, a passion for me uh, since then, even though it was never really formally what I studied. After college, I worked in finance for five years and sort of seeing just the amount of regulation that gets in the way of financials and the way that, you know, oftentimes uh, regulatory capture is used to the benefit of big players from the financial system and holds things back. That really motivated me to, you know, make my next step more um, advocating in the economic space rather than um, playing behind the scenes with, you know, the types of people who manipulate those those economic systems. So that that was really my my path to working at Fee. Now, here's the thing, though, because people think, well, ancient Egyptian history and economics of the modern time have nothing to do with each other, but. We, you know, one of our core values on this program is things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. Economics explains the sequence. Those pyramids didn't just appear, although the alien people on History Channel keep trying to explain that to us. That is economics, though, how those pyramids got yeah. built and all the slave labor and how they use things and how they oversaw things. That is part of economics. Those don't seem like they go together. But, yeah, they kind of do because economics is a human history story. So it's not that far fetched, is it? No, it's not. I mean, you know, the pyramids are a great example, right? It's sort of like Thomas Sowell's notion that there are no solutions, only trade-offs, right? Like they're, building the pyramids were a massive trade-off with the, the general populace being able to produce agriculturally for themselves or to produce new ideas, new 
technologies and in, in farming and and artisanship that were really the the primary economy for normal people back then right like there there was a massive societal trade or a trade-off to putting 30 years of the populace's labor towards building the king's tomb instead of you know towards their own ends freely chosen as as to you know meeting their own needs so yeah i mean there's there's a huge economic portion of that um a lot of that early state formation in egypt like one of the very first states organized states with writing that we know of was totally around the elite class's ability to to use economics to their advantage right as opposed to sort of to the betterment of society so there's a huge connection there. It's just like, I, I think from the earliest civilizations today, there's there's a straight line through everything. Yeah, and the word we use in our modern vernacular and in the Western and English-speaking word for those trade-offs is regulation because that's where the trade-off mm -hmm. meets the populace. There's the balance. How much is government going to control? How much is the people in the free market going to control? And regulation is where the ratio adjusts between the two. That's a real basic bare bones reader's digest version of it, but that's really what we're talking about. And that's why those two things go together, even though they sound like they're completely different, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Um, you know, in, in that respect, I think general population who doesn't have the ability to follow politics all the time um, doesn't really understand that a lot of these so-called regulations around the idea of making life easier actually makes doing business much harder for people all across the income spectrum and that ultimately has an impact on their bottom lines and how they're able to live their lives and how they're able to support themselves now, we're not anarchists so before we delve into because we're going to do some bashing of regulation here because it deserves it but we also need regulation it's important to have accountable government and good regulation is part of that accountable government because you do need guardrails on the economy Let's be fair here. Um, unfettered business usually gets to be as tyrannical as unfettered government does. There does need to be a ratio there. What's some of the guide rails that you look to for a healthy ratio when it comes to regulation versus the free market versus government power? Yeah, well, so that's that's a really interesting notion, right? Like where do regulations um, help and where do they hurt? On one hand, I think oftentimes regulations that prevent any sort of business collusion or, or preventing price fixing. Anti-monopolistic regulations, I mean, surely antitrust has been abused in recent years, but fundamentally the idea is that we need to be promoting competition. And in the rare cases where regulation actually preserve competition, I absolutely think that that should factor into the conversation. But then you also have the question of regulatory capture, right? Oftentimes regulations are in fact benefiting the biggest players in, in the business world because competition can't occur. So there, there's almost the test of like, is ultimately is a regulation pro-competition or anti-competition? And that's probably the simplest test as to whether or not it's going to help um, the average person. Now, there's also regulations around, say, commons problems, right? Like, I do, in fact, think the government should be saying that you can't, say, dump toxic waste into our waterways, right? Because um while nobody may nobody in the private sector may own those waterways um obviously people need to be protected from say their pollution or you know air pollution in ways that like privately owned businesses can obviously control for not wanting their own property ruined so those sorts of commons questions also need to to come into play when you're thinking about regulation 
Yeah, and we've had real-world examples that we haven't really had in recent memory, or at least living memory for most people. Things like COVID, where regulations that folks normally don't think of, come. and I'm not just talking about the vaccine stuff, I'm talking about when a business can and can't be closed for health reasons, when a school can be closed for health reasons. This brought it to the front, and what it really showed was two things. One is people don't think about how much regulation actually manages their lives, and two is, and you've talked about this a little bit, if you can get rid of a regulation for an emergency reason, did you really need it in the first place? Now, those are two separate conversations, but they're also running parallel. And every now and then they collide and things like COVID, things like economic hardship. That's when those things start crossing streams. And that's where we need to have the conversation of what good regulation is, because when crisis comes, that's when you really find out, isn't it? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Right. Um, you know, it, happened in a, a lot of cities, a lot of states. Um, you know, I'm thinking about in Chicago, for example, which was where I lived during the, the earlier part of the pandemic. Like, for example, permits to eat for outdoor dining were made much easier, right? Um, it's like, well, why was that so difficult to get previously? Um, you know, like, maybe there are reasons other than you know, the harder to transmit virus outside, maybe there are other reasons why you might want to eat outside from time to time or why restaurants would want to provide that to their consumers. So it just, you have to wonder why there are so many restrictions on our day-to-day -day life when, you know, you can then just remove them um, when they become politically inconvenient. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that you ever needed it in the first place. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. You give some examples. We're going to work off your piece in Spectator. We're going to link to the whole piece, as always. Read the whole piece for yourself. There's also a lot of linked information in there. Read it for yourself. But just taking a couple of things out of here, you have a couple of examples here. But big picture-wise, we understand that President Biden is a Democrat. We understand that the basis of the Democrat Party and our friends that are more on the left, they like big government. They like more regulation. The Biden administration has put in a lot of regulations in the first two years of their administration, really the first 18 months as we're talking. This is expected with a Democratic president. How does this fall compared to previous presidents just on the numbers and what his overall policy goals and how he's enacting it through regulation? How does this land? Yeah, so 
as we know, the president has some rulemaking power, right? In the executive branch, there's lots of, um, you know, state defense, but also those more economically targeted departments like commerce, labor, transportation. With all that, the president has some latitude to set rules on how those um, on how those bureaucracies do their job. And so um, oftentimes they can pass regulations that don't need to go through Congress because they're deciding how the executive branch does its job. Joe Biden did, I believe it was 94 such rules within those departments, 94 what are called economically significant rules. That is those rules with an impact on the economy of over 100 million um, as projected by the budget office. Um, for comparison, Donald Trump passed 34 economically significant rules in his time in office, or, or rather, excuse me, in his first year in office. Um, and Barack Obama passed only 78 in his first year in office. And Barack Obama was not exactly a small government guy. So the fact that Joe Biden found, you know, 94 different ways that we should impact the economy to that extent um, negatively is a bit striking, particularly given that we were already recovering from the economic impact of our COVID response. Yeah, and we see this in other areas. We see it in energy, of course. Folks don't realize, like, well, why are gas prices a lagging indicator? Well, because it has to be produced, and, and the production of transported is highly regulated. We see it in agriculture. We see it in manufacturing. We see it in transportation. We see it in healthcare. What is it about regulation? Because I, I've used this example before. It's like, once they put these regulations in, they're there until somebody takes them back out. A lot of times they don't ever get adjusted, taken out, or updated. This is the inertia of the American bureaucratic system and how it affects the economy, even when we're not paying attention to it. It just is, and it's always there, and it's always doing something, whether we realize it or not. And that's a big part of our economy that we don't really talk about much, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a number of ways you can think about how it affects people, right? Like, on one hand, regulations are almost like a tax. Um, they might make they might make a business's job more expensive, right? More, say, you know, with building regulations, maybe they need a more expensive kind of insulation. With healthcare regulations, maybe you need to do a procedure a certain way with more expensive tools. You can think of anything across any sector where um, regulation fundamentally acts like a tax. It can also act as a barrier to entry, right? So you get less competition because fewer new businesses can meet the price required to enter markets because of all the regulatory uh, overhead that they would need to acquire. That leads to higher prices for consumers. Those yeah. are my primary you know, regulatory concerns. Ultimately, um, they make life more expensive at different points in the process. And ultimately, that gets passed on to the consumer and has an impact on the broader economy. Look, let's be honest here. This topic gets wonky. Every time I have an economist on, I always tell them, I was like, you know, there's a lot of math and I don't like math. I admit it. I, I never got past algebra one in school because you could still get away with it back then. You could take geometry and they'd slide you just so they'd get me out of the school. How do we talk better about economics with folks? I always ask this question anytime somebody economical comes onto this show. What's a better way to talk about this stuff? Is it the practical stuff like a gas prices or the COVID stuff? Is it a is it more of a policy term of like we need to have a free market ideology or whatever you want to pick an ideology thing? 
when you're just talking to normal people or we're talking on our social media, what's the best way to kind of get into these economic issues? Is it the is it the people side of it? Is like, hey, this affects you. Is it the government side of like, hey, this is what our government's doing? What do you think? Well, so what you're touching on is kind of the the, the broader question of economics and politics, right? And I think the best strategy to go about it is to target the people side, but to make sure that normal people understand the why at a very basic level, right? Like part of part of the great thing about a diversified economy is that not everybody needs to think about every issue all the time. Um, and that's kind of translated into our political system as well. We don't want people to have to think about the economics behind everything all the time, but they should be able to understand, say, why gas prices spiked and that it's not just because you know, Putin so willed it. It's it's because gratuitously made it more difficult in, during the recovery from the pandemic to import foreign gas and to drill within the United States. And then we had an exogenous shock of the Ukraine crisis that made our supply go down and prices skyrocket, right? That is a very simple explanation that I think just about any regular old consumer can understand. And that is how we should be explaining economics to people, right? Yes, there is the people side, but when you give them that background information and give them sort of that broader theory, like as supply goes down, the prices go up, um, that helps people understand and make more informed decisions. It gives them the power at the to understand at the ballot box how to vote accordingly, understanding of what goes into these prices. Of that impact on the economy. We're going to talk about both the finance side and the government side of regulation because he's worked in finance. We're going to ask him about that. Might also get a little bit more ancient Egyptian work in the mix somewhere in here. We're having a great conversation with Mike Viola. Regulation from ancient times to modern times as Hertel continues right after this. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Uh, welcome back For to sure. Hertel. Mike Viola is joining us. Thrilled to have him. We're talking regulation. We're talking a lot of other things, too. It's understandable. One thing we talk about before is, you know, I said it about Trump. I'll say it about Biden. I said it about Obama and all the presidents of my lifetime. When it comes to economics, the president always gets too much blame and too much credit. We know this is just a fact. Why do we have this cognitive dissonance where we don't seem to want to blame Congress, who does have the enumerated power of the purse? This is supposed to be their. This is supposed to be our direct representatives. How come we don't blame Congress for the economy more often? We more tend to go towards the president or things like this. Yeah, that's a good question. I think the fact that the presidency has taken such an outsized role in our politics has led people to think that the president affects you know everything under the sun. But that doesn't change the fact that, yes, we do need to pay more attention to Congress. 
A big problem with Congress, of course, is that in every spending bill, they like to add all of their own little regulations or handouts to their own district. Um, and oftentimes people like what their own hometown congressperson advocates for, right? So they're the sort of the issue because most people like their own congressional representatives and like what their own congressional representatives are doing. And, you know, oftentimes don't really think that that is oftentimes where the real source of the problem is. If you add up the, the local interests of every single person in Congress, obviously there's going to be a lot more than the United States can actually handle in terms of spending and in terms of the burden that it puts on our economy. Um, so Congress should be our true target. But I think given the president's outside role in our politics and the fact that it's a lot easier to blame someone who you didn't vote for at the local level, who's talking about all your local issues, the, the president becomes a much easier target for those people who want to imagine that one person is pulling the strings. While we're defending the indefensible, big finance gets a bad rap, sometimes justifiably because they can be corrupt like everybody else. But you've worked in finance. Let people know the fact we're talking about these regulations, though. Even the stuff they do that is somewhat untoward and that people don't really like, a lot of that is dictated to them by regulation, though. How much of the financial sector, because you've worked on it and you also study economics, a lot of what they do is within the guide rails of the regulations that the government lays out for them, and then they're reacted to it. Talk about that a little bit, because that's another one of those economic things where I don't think we get the whole picture. We pick out one little part of it, like, oh, well, they're raising prices on this or whatever. Regulation greatly affects how big finance and the financial sector reacts to things, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So when I worked in finance, my, my most recent role was um, analyzing mutual funds that invest in bonds, right? So I would talk to people who buy up debt. And there I kind of learned um, that so many subsectors there are just so dependent on regulation, right? Like there were people who had to change their entire investment thesis because of different uh, lockdown regulations around the country, for example, right? Like when real world regulations have a huge effect on finance, but then there's also the impact on the financial sector itself, right? Across the country, after the 2008 financial crisis, um, we passed a lot of new regulations on the financial sector. And that led to small community banks around the country shuttering their doors because they couldn't meet the new banking regulations. So all that did was consolidate power for the biggest banks, which could then reach all around the country or move banks to say, a purely online format without any sort of brick and mortar and all the convenience that you used to be able to have of being able to walk into a bank. So it actually made a lot of the banking experience worse for the normal consumer. In investments, that's true too. When I was writing investment analyses, the restrictions on what I could say and how I could characterize my own words were enormous, right? And so that seriously stifled um, the way that people discussed financial matters, right? Um, they often say that, you know, the, the great thing about financial markets is that they communicate economic information ahead of time by the changes in asset prices, right? When sort of the smart money buys or sells something, that should tell you what they really think the confidence in, say, a company uh, really is. But oftentimes, 
I, as a writer in the financial industry, couldn't communicate that information because of FINRA and SEC regulations as to what could be presented as investment advice or opinion, which is heavily regulated and makes communicating critical information to investors much, much harder. Does the government get too in its own way when it comes to things like this? And we know they overregulate because the bureaucratic state's first job is to perpetuate the bureaucratic state. And that doesn't matter who's the president. It, it, it does it for the Republicans and Democrats alike. But when it comes to policy stuff like that, why is it so adversarial between the government and the private sector and the regular citizens and the people that control finance? There's got to be some better way to do this, right? And whether that's, you know, less regulation is kind of a unicorn we're going to always chase. But there's got to be some practical way for these folks to get along and at least work together a little bit better, doesn't there? Uh, well, I would certainly hope so. Um, I I think part of what's to blame is the use of different private institutions sort of as boogeymen, right? Like in 2008, big banks became the boogeymen, which while I, I don't exactly think they were blameless, you know, that also comes in the context of essentially being threatened in the 90s by the Justice Department to give out loans that people couldn't pay off, right? So um, there is sort of this cycle of expecting American corporations to do the government's bidding or to institute projects that they believe they can do faster than the market can. And so I think there, there's a, it's a chicken and the egg question, right? I, I think a, a freer market would reduce that adversarial component between American business and consumers and government. But I'm not sure we could actually get there without a toning down of the rhetoric already. Mike Viola is joining us. Great stuff. Speaking of toning down the rhetoric, uh, you're a new friend of the program. We're definitely going to have you back. But friends hold friends accountable. I was looking at your Twitter feed. Let's talk about your rhetoric a little bit here. Uh, there was the tragic incident outside of Memphis where a truck carrying Alfredo sauce spilled all over I-55. I know that road well because I was in Little Rock for a couple of years. And you quoted, and I quote, good, Alfredo is the worst so-called, in quotes, Italian sauce. Mike Viola, defend your tweet. <laughs> yeah, so I will just say, I have never at any real Italian restaurant had Alfredo. My grandparents came here from Italy in the late 50s. They never made anything called an Alfredo. It is a mess of heavy cream, which is hardly ever used in Italian cooking. Um, now, if you wanted to make, say, a nice cacio e pepe with, you know, olive oil and cheese, maybe a little butter, totally fair. But this heavy cream canned nonsense that we call Alfredo, I build all over a highway is exactly where it belongs. I, I see no use for it. You may think you like Alfredo. First of all, and of course, here's the real thing. Yeah, first of all, of course, yeah, American Italian food is a whole different thing than actual Italian food. Let's just get that right, because almost all of what we know of as American Italian with all the cheese and all that stuff, that all came out of New York City and the immigrant population. That's different than if you actually go to Italy, which I have done because I lived in Europe twice, and you eat, eat Italian food, it's completely different. But same can be said for Mexican food and Tex-Mex and other things. We always put our spin on. So, yeah, Alfredo is a is a uniquely American tradition. However, it's still pretty good to eat as long as you don't. I guess the Italian thing would probably bother you. But it, look, I'd probably be the same way about pepperoni rolls, but we can hash that out some other day. Uh, Mike Viola, Mike Viola, having a little fun with it at the end of it. Great information today. Um, he's at Fee, which puts out all kinds of great stuff. A couple of our other friends are there. 
Uh, till we get you back on Hertel again, let folks know where they can follow you, where they can keep track of what you got going on until we see you again. Yeah, absolutely. Probably the easiest place would be um, on Twitter. It's at MF underscore Viola. Someone else beat me to the version without the underscore. So I'm just always relegated to having punctuation in my handle. But uh, <laughs> that's probably the easiest spot to find me. Uh, fantastic stuff. That's on the screen uh, right under his uh, lovely face there. If you're watching on YouTube, we'll also link to his article and all his social media. And of course, the work at Fee. Make sure you follow. They got a lot of different stuff going on with some friends of ours. Make sure you're checking out Fee.org. Mike Viola, this was a pleasure. We will do it again soon, my friend. Thank you so much for the time. Yeah, thanks a lot, Andrew. It's really a pleasure. Yes, sir. the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you call clickgranger.com or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done